So we look tonight at some uh, the core mission of Elmira Baptist Church. And I picked this evening for this message because I figured who is going to be at a service the evening before Labor Day on a hot evening. It's going to be people who are serious, people who want to serve the Lord, people who want to be a part of what he's doing here at Elmira Baptist Church. Not that he's not doing things other places. He is, but this is the church that God's given us. So um, did I tell you Mark chapter 12? I did. Proverbs chapter 4. I'm sorry. I did that to you again, David. David's so good. He says, what are you preaching from tonight? And I'll give him a text. And then tonight I've switched to twice now. I know. Just to, just to frustrate you. Proverbs chapter 4. We're going to look at the end of this chapter. Proverbs 4.23. And then read down to verse 27. And what I want to do with tonight's message is to keep our goals, to keep our purposes in front of our church because it's easy to get distracted. And then next Sunday morning, um, preaching about commitment, preaching about perseverance. uh, And then following that on Sunday mornings, want to go through some basic devotional disciplines, things that we all should be doing. Some of those things we do daily, some of them we do weekly, some of them we do from time to time because the basics are important. I coached basketball at the high school level, uh, well, off and on for some time. And what I've learned is high school basketball players all want to be uh, like Kobe Bryant. I mean, by that, I mean a good basketball player. I don't mean dead. But they all want to be like Kobe Bryant. And they think that they're going to dribble and shoot like a professional. And if you can just get them to do the basics right, you can have an amazing team. But if they're all trying to show off and all trying to do it their way and, and everybody thinks that they've got a better plan than the coach, it doesn't work very well. And as Christians, when we think we have a better plan than God's word, when we think, ah, that's old stuff, let's just do it, do it this way, we get away from the basics that God's given us, that's when we get into trouble. So it's good to be reminded of the basics. And as I mentioned this morning, even if you've been saved a long time, even if you feel like you've got these things down, please pray for me, pray for those that have come and come on out and be refreshed to hear the the word of the Lord. Proverbs chapter four, verse 23, let me read to you. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Put away from thee a froward mouth and perverse lips put far from thee. Notice verse 25, let thine eyes look right on and let thy eyelids look straight before thee. That's concentration. Ponder the path of thy feet. And let all thy ways be established. Turn not to the right hand nor to the left. Remove thy foot from evil. Ponder the path of thy feet. Think about what you're doing. Consider your ways. Make sure they line up with what God has for us. And that's what we're going to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening, for the opportunity to gather. It's hot. And thank you for the the cool air that's blowing out of our air conditioner. And we're thankful, Lord, that you've gathered us tonight to praise you and to study your word. So we ask for your help. Again, we rely on your Holy Spirit to teach us the words. We rely on your Holy Spirit to make the the application to our lives, how, how this intersects with our lives. Where does the rubber meet the road in these issues? And how can we be more like Jesus Christ? How can we be even better servants for you? Bless those that have come tonight when they could be doing other things, when they could be busy about other things. Thank, thank you for bringing them out and, and give them from your word, that that seed to sow. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, 
Larry, Nita, you can't answer this next question, but did you know that for many decades, an Olympic gold medal winner lived right here in Elmira? I don't mean he lived nearby in Vacaville or Dixon. I mean right here in Elmira. Elmira, gold medal winning, Olympic gold medal winning athlete. How many of you know his name? Okay, those two. No one else? Okay. This is good. I, I thought maybe many of you knew about this. Bill Daly was on the 1928 eight-man rowing team from Berkeley. Now you say, how do you know? Well, they told me, and I just figured they told you too, but evidently they didn't. I looked up some details, but his name was William Daly, 18, 18, 1928. He was on the eight-man rowing team from Cal Berkeley. He won a gold medal uh, in, in eight-man rowing. Uh, I start with this story because some of you have heard me tell this. The, this is also a true story about the great British eight-man rowing team before the 2000 Olympics. Um, back at the turn of the century, the great British eight-man rowing team had not won a gold medal since 1912. And so they asked themselves, what do we have to do to win a gold medal? And you know what they decided? They decided... Before they did anything, before they made any decision about training, about meals, about, uh, about life, about how they were going to approach this Olympics, they were going to ask themselves one question. And that question was, will it make the boat go faster? Seriously, I'm going to eat a donut. This was their illustration, not me. Now, you know I love donuts, so this really spoke to me. I'm going to eat a donut. Will it make the boat go faster? Nope. I'm going to take a vacation while the rest of the team practices. Will that make the boat go faster? Nope, going to stay here and practice with the team. And in the 2000 Olympics, the Great British Eight-Man Rowing Team took the gold medal. Now, if you type into a Google search bar, will it make the boat go faster? That's the story that will come up. They now go around and do you know, motivational speaking. It's good for us to be reminded about what our goals are as a church, and ask ourselves, will this glorify God? Because it's very easy to become distracted, wander off the path that God's given us, not because we're trying to do evil, but because inside of us dwells an old man, <laughs> selfish person, and boy, if we can make it work for us the way we want it to work, we think that that's better. So this evening, I want to go back to some of this foundational material that's going to lay that foundation, going to give us a good a foundation on which to build these basic things. I want to start with what kind of church does Elmira Baptist Church wish to be? What kind of church? So this is what I'm thinking when I ask this question. If you were to ask one of our neighbors, for example, one of the folks that lives near our building but doesn't actually attend or not much, what kind of church are we? What would they say? If you were to ask one of our guests that came this morning, and praise the Lord for guests. I, I hope you've noticed that God has been bringing us many guests, and that's because so many of you are reaching out to your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, your friend, and saying, hey, why don't you come? Why don't you come visit? If we were to ask one of our guests that came this morning, <clears throat> what kind of church was it? What would they say? We, we have to keep our eye on that goal. What kind of church does God call us to be? And so I want to give you some things this evening that'll answer that question. The first thing that I want Elmira Baptist Church to be is, I want Elmira Baptist Church to be a church that's in love with God. Mark 12, 29 and 30, you know we've studied this over and over. The first 
of all the commandments is, this is Jesus speaking. He says, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Mark 12, uh, verses 29 and 30. Now, if you've been here any length of time, a year, two years, three years, you're going to say, Pastor, you keep preaching about that. You keep bringing it up. Because what is the danger that Revelation 2 talks about to that church at Ephesus? That they're busy. They're keeping the faith. But they've left their first love. They didn't lose it. They left it. And any time that a Christian leaves his first love, his love for God, it's because something else has come to occupy a more important place in his heart. And frankly, what that is, is idolatry. And so we've got to keep our heart, as Proverbs says, we've got to keep our heart with all diligence. Do I love God? Am I, am I really motivated by my love for God to serve him and to serve his people? So I want Elmira Baptist Church to be a church that loves God. Keep in mind, when we talk about love, we're not talking about a feeling, although I hope you feel warm, affectionate feelings towards God. We're talking about making a choice, making a choice. Think about that mother that's staying up with her sick child late into the night, all through the night, into the next morning. Why does she stay up with that sick child? Because that sick child's going to give her something at the end of his illness? No. In fact, the sick child's probably going to get better and go back to school and forget all, all about it. The mother loves her child. She makes a choice to put his needs before her own. And as Christians, when we say we love God, we're choosing to prioritize what God wants above what we want. We're choosing to say, God, you're going to be first in my life, even if that means I have to give up ambitions, even if I have to give up my own desires, even if I have to give up my own ideas for what should happen. So let's talk about what does this look like when we love God? You know, I'm big on this because it helps us to sort of think and examine our own lives and say, what does it look like if I love God? Well, first of all, if you love God, you are going to enjoy worshiping God. You are. I, can, I, I know because you've seen it too. Some people come to a church service, come to a worship time, like we had this morning, like we have tonight, and they're singing with enthusiasm. And they're happy to be there and they're excited. And other people come and they're not excited to be there. Now, sometimes that's because they're distracted. And I try to be patient with people and understand that from time to time they're distracted. But if they just seem to come Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and sit and just have a sour look on their face, I wonder why are they here? Because a person who loves God enjoys worshiping him. It, it, it just, it's just natural. You, boy, coming and singing God's praises is exciting. Now, what happens is, and I'm not going to go too far down this rabbit trail, but you know this to be true. What happens is, as that excitement disappears from a church, the temptation is to use more and more exciting music, more and more emotional music, to make up for what should be in our hearts. And that's why we want to be, as a church, we want to be very careful about the music we use because no musical emotion can make up for God's love in your heart. You either love God and you enjoy worshiping Him, or you don't. And if you don't, I can preach about it, and I hope you hear me, but ultimately you have to get with God and say, what's going on, Father? Help me. That love for you, I've left it. It's gone. And I need it restored to me. And God is so faithful. 
If you'll deal with God, he will deal with you. So the first evidence of a love for God is that you will enjoy worshiping him. And there's no substitute for that love in in some sort of emotional music. Second, the second evidence for those who love God, if you love God, you're going to love his people. You're going to love his people. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, 4. We're going to look at 1 John 4 and then chapter 5. If you love God, you're going to love God's people. 1 John 4, 20 says this. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him that he who loveth God, love his brother also. So if you're going to love God, you're going to love God's people. And we can see that here at Elmira Baptist Church. I see that. I, I'm constantly hearing good reports. So-and-so needed something and some other church member stepped in to help. So-and-so needed a meal and a church member brought it. Some of you offered to bring us meals this week. Thank you. It's because we love each other and we never want to lose that. We love each other because we love God. And when we stop loving each other, it means that we have stopped loving God as we ought to. Those who love God love his people. Those who love God obey his commandments. Now, 1 John chapter 5, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. When we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. You can't say I love God and then disobey him. In fact, if you want to measure how sincere or how deep your love for God is, you simply look at what God's called you to do and ask if you are obeying him. Because a Christian who is in love with God, a person, a Christian who loves God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength is going to naturally want to obey and to keep God's commandments. So first, we want to be a church that is in love with God. Second, we want to be a church that recognizes who God is and enjoys thinking on his attributes. We recognize who God is and we enjoy thinking on his attributes. What does Proverbs 9 tell us? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. The knowledge of the holy. To know who God is, is understanding. Now, how are we going to see that in our church? How are we going to notice that among each other if we're a church that recognizes who God is and enjoys thinking about his greatness, about his goodness? We enjoy thinking about his holiness. We enjoy thinking about his love. How are we going to see that in just everyday interactions? Not rhetorical question. I know. Now you're thinking, oh, now I got to think. Okay. How are we, Matt, was that a hand? We're going to talk about it. Now, I want you to just keep this in, in the back of your head, just from time to time, when we come to Elmira Baptist Church's buildings to meet, to worship him, are we talking about politics or are we talking about God? Now, there is, by the way, we need to talk about politics sometimes, don't misunderstand. But when we come to worship God, shouldn't our first thought be worshiping God? Do we talk about sports or do we talk about God? Now, I'm, I'm hitting things that men often talk about. What do ladies talk about? Do we talk about recipes? I, I don't know. What do ladies talk about? I, I have no idea. 
but, but yeah, I should. Thank you. But here's my point. When we stop talking to each other about how good God has been to us, how much he loves us, what he's done for us, then you know what's happened? We've, we, we've somehow we've, we've stopped recognizing God never changes, but we've stopped recognizing who God is and we've stopped thinking about his attributes. And that is a, that is our, that is our struggle. We struggle with life when we forget who it is that we serve. We forget who it is who is our father. Or as I mentioned two weeks ago, we forget who it is who is our God. What enabled Abraham to abandon his extended family, to leave his country of origin, to travel to a land that he didn't know about, and to trust God that when God said, see the stars, your descendants are going to be like the stars. What enabled him? Well, number one, faith. I admit that because that's what the Bible teaches, faith. But faith in what? Faith in Jehovah God. Not faith in his ability, not faith in Sarah's ability, not faith in faith. He had some concept of who God was. And when we don't, when we lose our concept of who God is, that's when we struggle with our faith and we start thinking, boy, God's not going to help me here. God's going to leave me uh, hanging here. This isn't going to work the way I think it will. And that's when we start taking detours that make sense to us. We want to be a church that recognizes who God is and enjoys thinking on his attributes. Number three, we want to be a church that comprehends that we can cooperate with God in what he is doing. Let me ask this question. This is sort of rhetorical, but give it some thought. Do you believe that God is at work in the world today? Well, hopefully you say yes. How about in the United States? How about in Northern California, where Governor Newsom is? How about right here in Solano County? See, if we believe that God is at work, then we also need to comprehend that he's not just doing his work and we're sort of spectators. No, we are active participants in accomplishing whatever work he's doing here in our area. Now, I'm, it's, this, sort of is, this is vague, frankly, because it, lots of different things God's doing. God is not single-minded because, remember, God is infinite. He can do a lot of things at once. So what is it that God is doing? Now, let's look at the negative first because you know and I know for far too many churches— Church becomes about what we want God to do. And I've been there. You know, I, I want God to finish this building. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to focus on finishing this building. Now, God is so good, that building is getting done. So yeah, I'm going to be a part of that. But there are other things God's doing too. And it's not a question of what Scott wants done at this church or what you want done at this church. It's a question of what God wants done at this church. And we're going to cooperate with him in accomplishing it. Some people want to have a food bank. Well, food, nothing wrong with a food bank. If God calls us to have a food bank, let's have a food bank. But is it what God wants or is it what we want? Some people want a program for every age from, you know, the littlest babies to the seniorest of saints and nothing wrong with that either. But is that what God wants or is that what we want? Some people want a men's softball team at their church. And again, God calls us to have a men's softball team. Let's do it. Let's have a men's softball team. But the question is, what does God want for our church? Not what do we want for our church? You remember what Jesus said when Joseph, 
his mother Mary found him in the temple. He's 12 years old. He got left behind. They thought he was with the rest of the family. He wasn't. Three days later, they find him. He's in the temple. He's disputing with the, uh, the, the teachers there, talking with the teachers there. And when they asked him, hey, what's going on? What did he say? Didn't you know I must be about my father's business? Jesus wasn't there because, boy, I'm going to show these guys how much I know. Or, boy, the temple's such an amazing place. I want to be a part of this. No, that's where God wanted. God the Father wanted him. After his disciples came back, they had gone into town to get some food. While they were gone, Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well. And when they came back, Jesus said, hey, I'm, I'm good. They said, hey, did someone bring you food? We didn't know about it. He says, my meat, my food is to do the will of him that sent me. See, Jesus comprehended that God the Father had a plan and he was cooperating with God the Father in the Father's plan. And we do the same thing. Now, we believe that God is at work, not just today, but he's going to be at work into the future, into eternity, literally. So even if we, even if we are living in the last days, and by the way, I think we're living in the last days, but even if we're living in the last days and the rapture is right, right upon us, guess what? God the Father is going to continue to work right up until that last day. And I just want to keep being busy about whatever he wants us to do. But if we're going to cooperate with God in his plan, this is what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to pray. See, prayer isn't telling God what I want him to do. Prayer isn't telling God what, I, what my plan is. Prayer is finding out what God's plan is and then praying according to that plan. And you know as a church, we've seen some amazing answers to prayer. Just a couple, uh, a year and a half ago, I guess, the doctors told Bud, 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 hey, you've got cancer. It doesn't look good. Bud's still with us. His latest PET scan shows that the tumors haven't grown, relatively stable. Yes, he's had some very sick days as he's gone through some treatment, but all in all, God's blessed him with, with a good life. That, that's an answer to prayer. Don't, don't attribute that to the doctors. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for doctors. Bud, keep going to the doctor. But we got to keep praying. And we didn't pray that because, well, that's what we want. Although, yes, we do, Bud, we do want you to be with us. But we also perceive that that's what God wants for Bud and for Pat. So we want to cooperate with God in prayer. You remember what James 5 says, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And the example he gives is, I was going to say Isaiah, <laughs> is Elijah. The example he gives is Elijah who prayed and it didn't rain for how long? Three and a half years. Now that's climate change. God, that's why God controls our planet's climate. He controls the weather day by day. He causes the sun to rise on the just and on the unjust and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. We want to cooperate with what God is doing in prayer. We want to say, okay, this is what God's doing in my life. This is what God's doing in my family. This is what God's doing in my church. This is what God's doing in my community. This is what God's doing in my nation. And we want to cooperate with him in prayer. That's why we have a, a meeting to pray every Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. Because we want to cooperate with what God is doing in prayer. I've got several more to go. Let me get to the next one. We want to be a church that is more concerned with God's glory than our own comfort. Now, this is where it gets hard. Because sometimes what God is doing makes us uncomfortable. 
it puts us in positions we don't want to be in. Think of John Bunyan sitting in prison because he wants to preach. And he's offered a license to preach, but he says, no, no, I'm not going to take a license to preach. God's called me to preach, not the king. Do you think that was very comfortable for him? I understand his daughter was blind. Do you think that was comfortable to sit in prison and pray that somebody provides financially uh, material support for his blind daughter, for his wife? That's not easy. But John Bunyan was more concerned for God's glory than for his own comfort. And we will see increasingly that we're going to have to decide whether we want to be comfortable or whether we want to glorify God. Just this week, I've talked with several of you that at work are facing some headwinds because, frankly, our society is moving in the wrong direction. And they want to put pressure on you at work and put pressure on you and your community to go along with. So they put pressure on you. And it's not a malevolent force. I mean, it is malevolent. It's demonic, frankly, in, its, in, its, in, its, in the back of it. But your, your HR director or your boss or whoever it is at work that's putting that, he may not even care. He's just going along with culture. As Christians, we can't go along with culture. And I want to state from the pulpit that when, when you're under pressure and you're not sure what to do, please grab me, please grab one of the deacons and ask some questions because we want to stand with you for righteousness sake. I don't know what that looks like because I don't know what the pressures are right now, but I know we want to stand with you for righteousness sake. Jesse and I were just talking this week about a, about a um, public school teacher in Kansas of all places who had lost her job initially because she refused to use the correct pronouns for one of her students. And we could spend a lot of time angry about that. I've already spent a lot of time this week angry about that. But here's the important thing. You do what's right. We want to stand with you. And let's be more concerned with God's glory than our own comfort. And we can trust that he's at work in our lives. If we'll just find out what he's doing and cooperate with him and pray about it. Uh, seventh, six, excuse me. We want to be a church that thanks God for his goodness. Because guess what? When you find out what God is doing... And you believe, you, you know who God is. You know how infinite he is, how great he is. And so you, you know who God is. You find out what he's doing. You're praying so you can cooperate in what God is doing. And you're more concerned for God's glory than your own comfort. Guess what's going to happen? Amazing things are going to happen. And that's when it's easy for us to say, see, look what a great church we are. No, 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 no. We are not a great church. We are a church who has a great God. Right? You're tempted as a parent. Oh, what a great father I am. Look at what my kids. No, no, no. I'm not a great parent. I'm a parent who has a great God behind him. Right. Right? Look, look at me. I'm a great husband. I'm a great wife. I'm a great... I, listen, the only reason any of us is successful in the Christian life is God's grace. Right. And so we want to say, thank you, Lord. And guess what? That closes the loop. We say, thank you for this. And guess what? Now we're, we're so excited to pray about the next thing because we see how God's answered here. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. Now, these are some basic things that we want to do as a church. There's one more, though. What do we want to do with all of these? And there's other things the church does. Don't, I'm not being exhaustive, but tonight I want to focus on these six things. There's one more thing we want to do with these six things. Guess what it is? Non-rhetorical question. Guess what it is? What do we want to do with these six things? 
Yeah, put them in our lives. That's right. And share them with who? Who? And specifically? Our next generation. My kids, my grandkids. I was shocked today, uh, not today, this week, I was listening to some history podcasts and the, the, the person giving the podcast mentioned that Mikhail Gorbachev, yeah, Gorbachev's, Mikhail Gorbachev's wife was a sociologist and she had done a study in the Soviet Union during the time of communism and had determined that the number one indicator of a person's religious nature, now again, this is not Christianity necessarily, but their religious nature was not parents, it was grandparents. Now, I don't, didn't read this report, that they were just remarking on it, uh, that that's the way it was. Here's my point, though. You grandparents can have a huge impact on your grandchildren. You parents, of course, have a huge impact on your grandchildren. And what we want to do is we want to take these six things and we want to give them to our children and we want to give them to our grandchildren. I know as a church, we're going to have to just keep working at this and keep working at this because it's not going to be easy. Because our adversary, the devil, he is crafty. He is clever. And he also wants our children. He also wants our young people. And our, you, you young people are going to have to make a decision as you grow up to the age where you can leave the house and do whatever you want and, and stay up as late as you want or get up as early as you want or go out with your friends whenever you want. You're going to have to make a decision whether you're going to follow God or whether you're going to do things your own way. Now, I can tell you how it's going to turn out. I can tell you how it's going to turn out. But you have to believe it for yourself. I wish that faith was like a vaccine that we could inject in people's arms, right? I'd gladly take a little bit of mine and give you a little bit because it only takes faith like a mustard seed. But if you don't have faith of a mustard seed, Christianity doesn't work. And I don't mean by that God doesn't work. I just mean you, you have to have faith. So young people, you need to decide who you're going to follow. But parents and grandparents, we have a responsibility to pass this on to the, that next generation. Okay, so these are the goals. This is the why. This is the motivation for what we do. But I want to look at the, the process, how we get to, to this place. Because it's easy to overlook the how, and then we end up in the wrong spot. So how do we get there? What is the process where we're going to incorporate these six things into our lives, and then seventhly, pass them on to the next generation? Well, it starts with the right motivation. And again, our motivation is love for God. Don't forget that. Our motivation is love for God. Your motivation is not to please me. Please, don't, don't think that what I really want you to do is make me happy. You please the Lord and let the Lord make me happy. And by the way, sometimes there will be times, not often maybe, but there will be times when you have to do what the Lord calls you to do and I'm not going to be happy about it. I can tell you I'm still mad at Andrew and Courtney for moving to Indiana. <laughs> I am. It wasn't their decision, though. And I understand that. So I can pray for them, and God bless them there in Indiana. I just feel like Indiana has enough good Christians. We need more out here in California. <laughs> so here's my point. You do what God calls you to do, and you let God make me happy. Okay? That's our motivation. That's the why. We love God. We just want to serve him. Let's get to the how. Okay? Let's get to the how. How do we do this? There are three tools that I'm going to give you tonight. There are actually more tools, but these three tools are pretty essential to have in your, in your uh, 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 toolbox. Thank you. That's exactly what I'm looking for. In your toolbox. 
Some of you men that like to do little jobs around the house know that about 90% of things can be accomplished with a hammer, a screwdriver, vice grips, right? If you have those three items, you, now there's times there's the wrong the instrument, but you can make it work. Well, these are the hammer, the screwdriver, and the vice grips of the Christian life, okay? The first part of this how is God's grace. We need the grace of God. We do. We are completely dependent on God day by day to accomplish what he wants us to do. So the question is, how am I responding to God's grace? Because some Christians, you've noticed this, some Christians, they get saved and it's like from day one, they're 100% given to, to, to letting God's grace flow through them. And boy, they grow so quickly. And other people, they're saved. I have no doubt. Well, as far as I know, humanly speaking, I have no doubt they're on their way to heaven. But they're like 1% open to God's grace. And it just moves so slowly for them. Because they're convinced that they've got to do it on their own. And trust me, you can't do it on your own. You can't get saved on your own and you can't be sanctified on your own. It takes God's grace. There's a second thing that we, all of us need, and that's God's word. We need God's word in our lives. And we're going to talk about both these issues at length as we get into our de devotional disciplines, our, our habits of righteousness that we want to build into our lives. But if you don't read and study and meditate on God's word, how, how are you going to know what he wants you to do? Now, I'm all for listening to podcasts or listening to uh, uh, programs that teach you God's word. I'm all for reading books. You, if you know me, you know I love books. And I, I, try to, I try to sit down and read some of some, some piece, some part of, of, of um, godly books just about every week. But nothing takes the place of God's word. You reading God's word, you studying God's word, you meditating on God's word. So do it. So God's grace, God's word. Here's the last one. The leading of the Holy Spirit. Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's what the Bible tells us. Walk in the spirit. For as many as are led by the spirit, they are the sons of God. Romans chapter 8. You have to learn how to respond to the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, here's an obvious question. How many Christians have the Holy Spirit? All of us do. So it's not a matter of, well, I got to find my friend who has the Holy Spirit. No, no. The Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives inside you. And the Holy Spirit, trust me, is constantly trying to give you direction and trying to give you power and trying to change your desires and trying to change the way you think. But when we grieve the Holy Spirit, when we quench the Holy Spirit, it can seem as if we don't even have the Holy Spirit with us. So we're going to talk more about that also in our devotional disciplines, but being led by the Spirit. So God's grace, God's word, and being led by the Spirit, they're going to get us to the what. And I'm moving along quickly. If you're thinking, boy, you're covering a lot of ground. I am. What we're going to go do is we're going to go back uh, over the next few Sunday mornings and we're going to cover this material in depth. So I'm just trying to get, give you an outline. How many of you remember going to a college class and the professor gives you a syllabus and their syllabus has, all, and you think this class is just going to be a monster. I'm never going to finish this class. Look at all this material. And then a wise professor will break it down piece by piece by piece by piece. And a bad professor will walk out of the class. Okay. But a good professor breaks it down piece by I'm going to break it down piece by piece, but I want to give you an overview because I think it'll help you put things together. 
What is it that we're trying to achieve through God's grace, through God's word, and through the leading of the Holy Spirit? I'm going to use the word habits. Habits. I call them habits of righteousness. When you get dressed, when is the last time you thought, do I put my shoe on my right foot first or my left foot first? I'm guessing you can't remember the last time you thought, does it right foot first or left foot first? Because you developed a habit of putting your shoe on one foot first and the other foot second. Now, it doesn't matter right or left. That's not what I'm, you know, Christians put their foot shoe on the right, left. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying we get into these habits, don't we? How many of you don't, don't raise your hand. How many of you have just gotten to a habit if you're, Wife, if your spouse, if someone says it's time for dinner, you go to a sink and you wash your hands. It's just a habit for some of us. Some of us get up in the morning and we brush our teeth, even if we haven't eaten yet. We just brush our teeth. It's a habit. Nothing wrong with any of those habits, but how much better to build in habits of righteousness so you just do what you're supposed to do. One of the habits, and we're not going to actually even deal with this habit, one of the habits that the Lord had to build into my life was truthfulness. Because as a young man, when I was high school age, junior high age, it seemed to me the best thing to do was to tell people pretty much what they wanted to hear. So you can, you've, you know this, you can color just about any story to, to fit what people want to hear. But I found out there's a problem with that. They'll go talk to someone else. I don't know why they do that. But after you've established a reputation for coloring the truth, Guess what? People don't believe you. So they go find someone else and they ask. And then someone else tells them another piece of the story. And I've learned it's just better to be truthful with people. So it's a habit now. You know, when when you come to me and you ask me something, I don't think, okay, now do I lie to this person or do I tell them the truth? I don't think, that doesn't even cross my mind. Right? When you get up in the morning, is it a habit to get into God's word? Now this last week I was interrupted. There was a... Well, I interrupted. It doesn't matter what the interruption was. And I didn't get into God's word first thing in the morning. And you just feel off because you weren't there. Now, it doesn't have to be first thing in the morning for you. As I mentioned, some of you, it's afternoon. Some of you, it's evening. But if you miss that time with God, you can tell something's not right in your spiritual life because you've developed a habit of righteousness. There is nothing wrong with developing those habits of righteousness if you're motivated by love for God. See, you can just do the habits out of habit and lose all meaning. And that's, I believe, a big, a primary application of having left your first love. Because the church in Ephesus, they were busy. They were doctrinally sound, but they had left their first love. Habits are not bad in and of themselves. It's not a bad habit to brush your teeth or not a bad habit to put your shoe on the right foot first. Habits are good because guess what? You stop thinking about what you're going to do. You just do it. And we want to build in these habits of righteousness. Now, I'm going to give you nine habits. And these are the habits that we're going to cover over the, not next Sunday morning, but the following Sunday morning. uh, With a couple exceptions, we're going to cover these nine habits. So I'm going to go through them quickly. If you don't write them all down, don't worry about it. I'll get to them again. But I just want you to hear what they are. Number one, the habit of prayer. Now, there's actually, I found in my own life, there's two ways that we can look at prayer. There's the dedicated prayer time that you're going to carve out every single day to spend in prayer. You either have that time or you don't. If you say to me, well, you know, there are days I pray. 
I, I mean, I carve out time to pray. Okay, that's nice, but that's not a habit. A habit will be every day. I mean, it'll, it, it'll just happen. But there's also a second type of prayer, and that's spontaneous prayer because things come up in our lives and we weren't expecting it. You get a phone call. Your child's been in a car accident, right? You don't say, okay, I'll write that down and pray about it tomorrow morning. You don't do that. You pray right then. Both types of prayer are important. And you can measure your closeness to God by how long it takes between the phone call and the prayer. Right? Because if you really believe God is amazing and he's infinite, whenever those unexpected trials and and, and tribulations come up, you find yourself, again, habit, going to God and saying, God, I'm going to need help with this. So that habit of prayer is the first thing. The second habit, and, and I am becoming more and more convinced of the importance of this habit, is meditation on God's word. But his, this is Psalm 1-2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Meditate day and night. You say, you meditate at night? Yes, I did. This past week, I, I woke up in the middle of the night, I couldn't go back to sleep. So you know what I do? I hate to just lay there. It feels like you're wasting your life to lay in bed and not be able to sleep. So I just meditate on scripture. Now that requires me to memorize something because I don't want to turn on my light and wake my wife up. I find out she's usually up anyway, but I still don't want to turn on my light and wake my wife up. So I'm memorizing scripture and I'm meditating on it. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Have mercy on me. For in the shadow of thy wings, I trust. This is from Psalm 57. That's what I'm working on right now. Do you have something that you are meditating on this week? It it makes all the difference. Here's the third thing. Prayer, meditation. Here's the third habit. Again, these are habits. These are things you're just going to do naturally as you you develop the habits. Here's the third one. Joyful giving. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. For God loveth a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver. Now, if you have learned to give to the Lord what he asks of you, you have come to realize you can do more with what remains than you can do with all 100%. And we're going to talk about that as well. So joyful giving is number three. Number four, and we mentioned this earlier, learning to respond to the Holy Spirit. We ought to live in an awareness of the presence and the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. So, learning to walk in the Spirit. Number five, if we walk in the Spirit, we're going to have a victorious struggle against sin. You will always struggle against sin as long as you're alive. Until Jesus changes this vile body like into his glorious body. Until he takes what is mortal and, it, and he puts on immortality, we're going to always be plagued with sin. But it ought to be a victorious struggle over sin because Jesus Christ has the victory. He doesn't have to go win it for you. He won it at the cross. So as you develop this habit, you're going to see that 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 struggle against sin becomes a victorious struggle. And then as you have that victorious struggle against sin, oh, here, number that's number five. Number six, a diligence to, a diligence to study and understand the scriptures. Second Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. As you experience victorious Christian living, and as you grow in your knowledge of the Bible, you know what your battle is going to become? 
Think about that. If you're living in victory and you know your Bible, you're one of those guys, someone says, you know, I was reading this verse the other day. It said something about this, but I can't remember where it says. Oh, yeah, I know exactly where that is. It's, and they, wow, that's exactly the verse I'm talking about. When you get to that point in your Christian life, guess what your battle is? Pride. Somebody's over there sort of not bold, but it's true, isn't it? Why does that Christian struggle with sin? I don't struggle with that anymore. Why doesn't so-and-so know his Bible? I mean, he's been saved 10 years. What is that if not pride? So the seventh thing is sincere humility because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, this isn't quite a habit, but it's an, it is an attitude that we've got to, to cultivate and develop in our lives. Otherwise, we become very proud Christians. And you've met people like that. They are so sure that they are right. They are so sure that you are wrong. They're so sure that they are a better Christian than you, as if you measure that. That's number seven. Number eight is regular attendance at worship. We're going to talk more about that when we get there. And then number nine is consistent efforts to evangelize. Are you excited every time you have an opportunity to share Jesus Christ as the answer to somebody's sin problem? When's the last time you had a chance to offer Jesus Christ as the answer to somebody's sin problem. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. We ought to be excited about it. We ought to be looking for those opportunities. And when we see them, we ought to be like a shark when it senses blood in the water. That's a terrible illustration, isn't it? <laughs> but I understand sharks can sense this blood in the water literally a mile away, and they go swimming right for it. We ought to be looking. We ought to see when someone is seeking. We ought to see when someone's not seeking, but that's the answer that they need anyway. My, I'll tease my daughter. She has a friend who constantly is telling people, you need therapy. You need therapy. You need, not, not my daughter doesn't say this. Her friend says, you need therapy. Friend from work. You know, most people, they don't need therapy. They need Jesus Christ. And if she can be bold enough to tell everyone they need therapy, we can be bold enough to tell everyone you need Jesus Christ. One of you shared with me just today how you had a friend just really struggling. You said, you know what you need? You need Jesus Christ. Keep telling your friends that. That's what they need. We want to develop these nine habits. And again, we're going to hit, uh, hit them over the next uh, couple of months. You pray for me. You pray for yourself. We're going to do this on Sunday morning because I want some of these folks that have just been able to come occasionally, or maybe they, they've just started coming. I want them to learn the basics of the Christian life. I want all of us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want us to be reminded of the things that really matter. And I want us to stay focused as a church. I want us to ask ourselves the question, not literally, but in this vein, will it make the boat go faster? But instead of will it make the boat go faster, will this glorify God? Just ask, will this glorify, will building a new building glorify God? Yeah, I believe it will. That's why we're doing it. Will inviting my friend to come join us for worship glorify God? I believe it will. Invite your friend. Will meditating on God's word glorify, I believe it will. Let's do that. Let's develop these habits of righteousness. And where we've developed them, then let's pass that on to who? The next generation. Whether it's your grandkids, whether it's your children, or maybe it's just a friend. Let's pass it on to someone else. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word. And I'm burdened for Elmira Baptist Church. 
because I do know your work here in Northern California. It's a place a lot of Christians have sort of around the United States have sort of written off. I know you're at work. I know there's a reason you've gathered us to be the members of Elmira Baptist Church. And I ask, Father, that you'd give us a fresh vision, open our eyes to what you're doing so that we're excited, so that we're eager to pray, so that we are eager to work to accomplish your plan for Solano County, for Northern California. We're eager to pass this on to the next generation, our children or our grandchildren, or maybe our neighbor or a coworker. Father, open our eyes again that you're at work, that you are great, that right up until the day you call us to be, you call us home to you, whether it's to meet you in the air, whether it's to meet you because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that we are busy about our Father's work, that we are excited. Thank you, Father, for what you're doing in our building program. Thank you for the folks that you're bringing to Elmira Baptist Church. I pray that we wouldn't become proud or lazy or satisfied, but we'd be hungry to draw even closer to you. And we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.